From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 90 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling. I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Doing well. We're having a few days of drying out before our next storm hits. So, um, wow. so otherwise, otherwise, doing well. Good, good. Doing yeah, well no, it's, uh, it's always good to hear. Good news yeah. is better. Well, no news is better than bad news. Yes, I, I suppose. Yeah. So, hey, last week we had talked. We talked about the. Um, the first Pixar Spark Shorts Pearl. And I'd said, oh, Smash and Grab's coming out next week. It actually came out the day before we recorded. I, uh, and I, I yeah. hadn't noticed it. And so have you got had a chance to see it yet? I actually haven't. And then also one more released. Uh-huh. I believe it was also on, uh, well, this is Friday as of right now. So it released back on Monday. And no, I have mm-hmm. not caught up on either oh. of those two. But have you? Yes, I've seen both, actually. I figure we'll talk about Kit Bull next time. That's the latest one, and that is my favorite so far. That's and the 2D-drawn one, right? Yes, it is. Okay. It's, it's 2D, at least as far as two, Pixar can go, drawing 2D. And and then, and then um, yeah, that's the one that's uh, Friendship Between a Kitten and a Pit Bull. And Smash and Grab is the second one. And it is, uh, it's an action adventure about two robot friends who want to do something other than the jobs that they were designed for. And it, I think mm-hmm. you'd like it because it has a really rugged Art Deco feel oh, yeah. to it. Yeah, I just, I really haven't had the time to get around to sit down and watch it, which I know they're short, so that shouldn't be an issue. But it's like, usually at the time when they pop up on my YouTube app, I'm like, no, I can't watch it right now. And then, you know, I'll find myself like 30 minutes later scrolling through Facebook for a half an hour. And like, that would have been the perfect time where I could have actually watched something that uh, was more enjoyable than seeing uh, a bunch of photos and videos of people cooking and just a whole lot of nonsense. <laughs> but yeah. that's that's the problems that we live in in our current first world situation. I suppose so. But I, I like that they're all different. So uh, yeah, that's and that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I'm looking forward to more coming out of the Pixar sh- Spark Shorts yeah. collection and, here. Well, uh, kind of like we said uh, last time around, it's it, it doesn't matter what the reasoning behind releasing these is. All that matters is that, uh, at least from the consumer side of things, that we're getting interesting stories being told and. Uh, shown to us in a very convenient way i mean it's Mm -hmm. there are there are people who release their short films other other studios and stuff who release them on youtube without uh any cost or anything to them but 
it's it's one of those things that it's they they could have easily you know paired some of their shorts up with maybe even Disney live action movies that might have held a, a higher rating than mm-hmm. than G or PG and you know they they could have found ways to still distribute these things but instead they're just being handed over to us on on a platform that everyone has access to as long as you mm-hmm. have a smartphone or computer and that's that's really awesome uh, it's yeah. it's something that i hope becomes a trend uh, more than more than just a, a special occasion yeah well and they also serve as um you know advertisements for the you know disney um plus two that's coming out the disney yeah, streaming yeah. service so anyway but um yeah oh do you want to remind folks about our um q a episodes that are coming up and how they can become a part of them absolutely i can do that uh if you missed the last time around uh it's we we have our next question and answer episode coming up later on in march and we already have a thread started on on facebook.com slash disunplugged and i'll go ahead and pin it to the top of the page for a while here so that way uh, it doesn't fall too far behind because now that now that we're about a week since that's been out it's uh it definitely has gotten pushed down the line but that hasn't stopped a bunch of you out there from already asking questions and uh, you know of course we've received some really ridiculous questions on there too that are worth about a, a quick laugh and nothing more than that but uh, still plenty of time to get in there and actually ask your questions so uh, as always the ground rules with it we just ask that you give us more uh, open-ended questions not straightforward yes or no answers sufficing the questions that you're asking because that's not fun and as always please do not ask us uh, our opinion of what we think Walt would think of this or that or that or this or the other because we cannot yeah, that, answer that, that's, it. That one's falling on deaf ears, Craig. <laughs> I know, but it's it's one of those things. It's We've explained it over and over again. We cannot... We, we can't even fathom what Walt would think of it. Yes, we could sit here and and say, yeah, we think Walt would feel this way or we, Walt would feel that way. And, you know, I think I've... I I can say on other shows and stuff we've done, every now and then I've slipped into that because we feel like we do know what Walt would think. And in some situations, just based on quotes we might have heard and and other behaviors that we've seen through through other uh, instances in his life. But ultimately, we, we can't answer. I can't tell you what mm-hmm. Walt would think of, of Pandora besides, well, Walt liked innovation and... It's definitely innovative, so maybe he would have liked it. It's it's all just speculation, and it's it's not it's not responsible on our part because then y'all are going to go off and say, well, the connecting with Walt people said that Walt would have loved this or that, and and then and then we're just causing a whole mess. So <laughs> yeah. it's better to just avoid those ones. Okay. Yeah, but looking forward to those those yeah. episodes. Uh, just a couple reminders about some uh, events coming up. Uh, 
Walt Disney Family Museum. I'm part of a meetup with the hosts of the Leaving Today podcast. That would be Mark, Hurry, and Jen. And also with Disney historian and author of Eat Like Walt, um, Marcy um, Smothers. This is on Sunday, May 3rd. Um, Marcy and I apparently are going to um, lead a tour of the museum for uh, listeners of the Leaving Today podcast and connecting with Walt. So <laughs> I, I think Marcy's going to take the lead. And uh, but, but anyway, meet, meet us in front of the museum on Sunday, March 3rd at 10.30 in the morning. The tour will begin around 11 and expect to finish around 2 or 3. Admission will be required um, to the museum. And this should be a lot of fun. So it'll, get a, it'll be a fun time to meet folks from the Bay Area at the museum. So if you've been thinking of going and putting it off, now might be a, a good time to do it. And, and, and wear your Connecting with Walt shirt or your Diz shirt or something like that. So, And speaking of the museum, you can find me and Mary Jo from our Disneyland show at the Walt Disney Family Museum this weekend, Friday, February 23rd and 24th, where we'll be teaming up once again for Mouse Adventure at the museum. So if you see us um, walking with purpose through the museum, um, looking very studious and deep in thought you'll know you'll know what that's about but on on we're actually doing the uh, the adventure on um the 24th but we'll be scoping out the museum on the 23rd so we might not be too talkative on the 24th because we're under time constraints but on the 23rd you know definitely if you see us you know stop us and say hello and we'll have an episode, another episode on Mouse Adventure at the museum coming up soon. Well, a couple of weeks ago, the Disney community was saddened to learn of the passing of Ron Miller, Walt's son-in-law and husband of Walt's eldest daughter, Diane. And in last week's episode, we talked about the life and legacy of Mr. Miller. And it was just a few days later, the news was released about the passing of Disney legend and chief archivist for the Walt Disney Studio for 40 years, you know, Dave Smith. So joining us in this episode to share stories about Dave Smith is our good friend, Disney historian and author Jim Corcus. Jim, welcome back to Connecting with Walt. Well, thank you very much. And Michael, I consider you a good friend uh, uh, as well. And thank you for the opportunity to uh, be able to talk about uh, uh, Dave, you know, it, it really is a an end of a, an era, and, and I don't think it ever occurred to us that there would be a time in our life where there would be no Dave Smith, you know, to go to and, and uh, ask a, a, a Disney question. Um, and uh, I, I knew Dave personally uh, since uh, 1980. In 1980, I, uh, so that's, oh gosh, that's what, 38, 39 years ago now. Uh, in 1980, I wrote an article about um, uh, two Mickey Mouse cartoons that had uh, Fred Moore animation in them. And, and of course, I was a, 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 a young writer, so, you know, I didn't have access to an awful lot of uh, uh, information. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was headstrong and all of that. But, but I got a, a letter uh, with Disney Archives uh, letterhead paper uh, from Dave. It, it was very short. It, it was only two paragraphs. The, the first paragraph um, complimented me on the article and, and you know, for, for dealing, you know, with, with that material. 
And then the second paragraph is he pointed out two mistakes I had made. <laughs> and and <laughs> one of the mistakes <laughs> and, and one of the mistakes was nomenclature, which was a a, a particular uh bugaboo for him, you know, uh, a particular irritation. And and the mistake I had made in nomenclature is I had left out the word the in the title of a cartoon. And uh, I, I was sharing this story with Leonard Moulton, who, who's also a friend, and he said that when his book, The Disney Films, came out, he got like a 19-page uh, letter, single-spaced, uh, and this is back in the days of typewriters there, uh, from Dave Smith, Point uh, the first paragraph complimented him on the book and was glad that he had done the book and that the book was out there. And then the rest of it was all of these errors in the book, and most of them, because uh, I got to got to see that, I I, I would say seventy five percent, maybe more, were just on nomenclature, because it was very very important for Dave that uh, accurate information uh, get out there, that, that uh, you know, bad information not uh, proliferate. And, and as much as we think of Dave as, well, he's the ultimate authority on, on Disney, and I would not argue that at, at all, and he was the one that, you know, uh, people went to for questions. He was often the very first person that people had a contact with when they tried to contact, you know, uh, the, the Disney company, but as much time as it, Dave spent, um, researching and documenting, uh, material, he spent at least as much time debunking myths. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think one of the most famous instances is when, uh, the first uh, edition of Trivial Pursuit came out and it asserted that actress uh, Marilyn Monroe was the model for the character of Tinkerbell. And so Dave jumped right on that and, and pointed out that, no, it was actually performer uh, Margaret Carey. Mm -hmm. Although what's interesting about that is, of course, that Margaret Carey knew Marilyn Monroe, and, and they actually uh, had uh, a modeling assignment together, and, and Margaret has... Uh, uh, in her in her personal co collection, a picture of herself taken by Marilyn Monroe, and then um, Margaret uh, uh, took the picture of Marilyn Monroe, and Marilyn Monroe took the camera and took the picture of Margaret Carey. You know, but uh, oh. the the uh, you know the urban legend was oh well Marilyn Monroe you know was the uh, because Marilyn Monroe was very popular when the Peter Pan movie came out. However, when the Peter Pan movie was in development, Monroe was not well known. So uh, anyway, <laughs> Dave spent all of his time uh, not just researching information, but trying to go out there and uh, uh, correct all of that misinformation that was out there. And, and what irritated uh, Dave was that, uh, you know, uh, sometimes the Disney company, would do that themselves. So, for instance, uh, out here in Florida, uh, at um, uh, the Disney uh, Disney Hollywood Studios, uh, there's the exhibit 
you know, one man's dream, and they have the, the film at the end, and one of the things where I saw Dave just turn red in the face is there's a segment in the film where they talk about Walt going into television and, you know, the wonderful world of color, and it says, and now your host, Walt Disney, and then it cuts to the opening of the Epcot film. And Dave would get apoplectic. He, he would go, I've, I've spent most of my life trying to explain to people that the Epcot film was never part of the Disney weekly TV show. It, it, it was shown on uh, local stations in Florida. Uh, it was used by Disney executives sometimes at, at, at events to promote, you know, what Walt was going to do, but it was never part of that. And he says, and they edited that film to imply that it was part of that show. And uh, grumble, grumble, grumble. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, now, now, Michael, did you ever uh, meet Dave in person? Yes, several times, actually. And he was even a, a guest on one of our disc cruises. He was a featured um, speaker. Uh, and Craig, this is something you might remember. He always, always found this entertaining because they had, they had a activity at the time called who wants to be a musketeer and it was a trivia contest for mm -hmm. families on disney and dave never missed one of those mm. the whole cruise and then afterwards because sometimes i would hang out afterwards and chat with right. folks and dave would then go up with his list of corrections <laughs> to the host oh my gosh who, who basically you know, and, you know and, who and, were and, ship cast members you know you know this mm -hmm. was all sent to oh. them from either orlando or burbank but mm -hmm. but he i think he lived for those trivia contests every day <laughs> well, well he he he, lo he he loved uh doing that you know uh i i asked him one time you know why did he take on that daunting task to write um Disney A to Z, the official encyclopedia. You know, I, I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy enough to decide I'm going to write the official encyclopedia of, of Disney, you know? That, that, that's going to drive you crazy. And he said he wanted to have something where the information was handy and he knew he could trust it. <laughs> <laughs> and so when he did uh, a trivia contest for... Um, like the Disney stories, very popular back in the day. Uh, he would just take, you know, uh, uh, Disney A to Z and just flip randomly to a page and, and find a topic. And he said, you know, the trick to trivia contests is that some people are experts on Disney animation. Some people are experts on the Disney parks. He said, but nobody is an expert on everything. So all you need to do is pull out that one question about a performer on a Disney Channel show, yes, and the person is stumped. <laughs> yes, that is very true. <laughs> you know, and and so you know he loved uh, having that because uh, he said most of the questions that he got, you know, were always similar questions. I, I I don't know if you run into this because I'm sure many people ask you questions, and and about ninety percent of them, you know, you can probably already answer off the top of your head because they're all so uh, familiar. He said, but it's that other 10% that you have to research and you have to decide, is it worth the time to research those? You know, because it's going to take an awful lot of time. It's going to take an awful lot of effort. The Disney archives is not as organized <laughs> as you think, you know, 
And uh, would that be a future use? You know, because the Disney archives started off just as one man with, with Dave there, and they really didn't have much of a budget. So, you know, those storage boxes that we all have, you know, Dave would fill a, a storage box and, you know, label on the side of the box, you know, Winnie the Pooh. You know, this is all the Winnie the Pooh material. However, if there was still room in the box, Dave would fill it with whatever else was there just to fill up the box, you know? Mm-hmm. And so uh, that that's driving some of the Disney archivists crazy now because they'll pull a box off the shelf that says Winnie the Pooh, and they figure there's Winnie the Pooh material in here. And there is, you know, but there's all this other stuff that they had no idea they had. You know, that even happened to Dave. I was in Dave's office one time we were sitting, and I'm also a big comic book fan and a big comic book uh, collector, and I wrote articles about comic books and things like that. And we were sitting there, and so David pulled out uh, a box of some of the uh, uh, older Disney comics, and he picked up, uh, you know, uh, this one issue, which was pretty commonplace, and out of it slipped a um, Donald Duck Talks About Kites, which was a limited edition, um, uh, eight-page special done by a Southern California electric company. And Donald Duck is talking about kites and uh, why it's for an electric company is you don't want to get kites close to electric lines, whatever. At the time, that comic book, if they had wanted to get a good copy for the archives, would have cost 2500 bucks. Oh, wow. And this was in mint condition. <laughs> and Dave said, I had no idea we had this. He said, I know, you know, we, would, we wanted one for the, the archives, but we would never be able to afford it because, you know, there were other priorities you would spend on rather, rather than this. There it was. They had no idea they had it. Here was a mint copy that just slipped out of the comic book, you know, uh, at his... Uh, uh, at his feet there, you know, mm-hmm. and so um, oftentimes the Disney company doesn't, uh, the Disney archives especially, doesn't know what they have or where it is, <laughs> you know, because when you think of the Disney archives, you think, oh, yes, well, it's the Di-. well, there's the building on the, the property at the studio, but there's a warehouse about three miles away that is about twice that size which has shelves with all these boxes and things in it. And as much as the Disney Archives has, it doesn't have everything. So, for instance, there's the Animation Research Library that has all the animation art. Uh, There's what's called the main files, which have all the legal contracts. Uh, Imagineering has its own archives, which is devoted solely to you know, to, to the, the parks. There's a, there's a photo library with over, uh, well, when I, I was uh, there, there was over 2 million photographs. I'm sure it's grown quite a lot by then. And they were only able to digitize about 30,000 of them because it takes time and labor and money to do that. And so what you do is you digitize the ones that are most commonly used. That's, that's why we all see you know, the same photos over and over again. 
you know, and as Dave pointed out, some of these other photos, there'll never be a call for. There were, he, he showed me um, from the same photo shoot in the 1930s, uh, about two dozen photos of Waltz uh, surrounded by Mickey Mouse merchandise. And he said, we can't digitize all of these. We'll digitize one or two as an example, because that's all people will want when they, they want to write uh, uh, an article. And and since you knew Dave, you knew that even though he was the public face of Disney history and, and he was shoved out into the crowd for, you know, events and commentaries on DVDs and media interviews and all that, basically he was a, a really a pretty shy and private person, you know. And uh, what I found in my personal experience is sometimes he could get a little prickly and grumpy, you know, especially if he felt he was being um, uh, pressured, you know. But but for but for the most part, he 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 was patient. He he was nice. He was he was helpful. He he reached out to to everybody. He he wasn't concerned about. Uh, you know, status? Are you a Disney executive? Or are you just a, a a Disney fan who's who's interested in a a, a Disney question? You know, it, it was all pretty much the same for him. Yeah. Now, there's a great story of when he was a teenager, about about a year after Disneyland opened, and he was yeah, visiting with his family. Years old. Sixteen yeah, years and, old. and and it, it was like he was predestined. <laughs> you know, to work in the archives. Can you share that story? It's just sure, a it's sure, and and, and 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 I'll also share the funny twist that that uh, never gets shared. Yeah, uh, uh, he grew up in uh, uh, Pasadena, which is adjacent to Glendale, which is adjacent to to Burbank, and um, Disneyland opened in '55, and basically his parents said let's wait till things settle down before we go. <laughs> and so um, they, they went in 56 when he, when he was uh, 16 years old. And, um, you know, he, he liked uh, Disney, but he wasn't what we would consider today a Disney fan. Today a Disney fan is, is, is fanatical. You know, uh, Dave liked uh, uh, Disney, and uh, but he admitted to me one time he also liked, when he was growing up, he liked Tom and Jerry cartoons just as well. But uh, so in '56, he goes to Disneyland, and he's uh, uh, walking around, and in Fantasyland, he sees Walt Disney walking uh, uh, around, and and uh, Walt used to do that in the early days of the park, you know, just to make sure things were were working, and. Uh, this was 56. The uh, Disney TV show had come in on, on in uh, 54. So some people knew what he looked like, but not a lot of people knew what he looked like, so he was able to do this. But but Dave recognized him I- immediately, and, and Dave was starting to collect uh, celebrity autographs. Later in life, he co- collected uh, historical autographs around, uh, connected with the Civil War. But anyway, he was collecting, and he thought, oh, I... I probably should get his autograph. So he, you know, had a souvenir book, but he didn't have a pen. You don't carry around a pen with you, whatever. So he went to the magic shop that was uh, in the, uh, uh, by the castle there, and the only thing they had was these two-foot-long uh, magic pencils. 
And, and the magic pencils were magic because they had different color leads. So as you wrote, sometimes you got a different color, you know, a, as you were writing. So, you know, you'd get red, and then as soon as the red ran out, there'd be a blue and, you know, whatever. And so he bought that, and he ran to uh, uh, Walt Disney, and he said he was very polite, and, and he asked for the autograph. And Walt was very polite, and he said, no, look, I, I, I don't sign autographs, because if I start signing autographs, then a huge crowd comes around me, and I never get any work done. And, and that was true. In, in fact, Sully Sullivan, who worked at Disneyland, said, you know, oftentimes, you know, we'd have to go out and, and pull Walt off stage, <laughs> because Walt would just stay there as long as there were people there. He didn't, you know, so we had to be the bad guy and do that. And so uh, Walt told Dave, write to me at the studio, and I'll send you an autograph. And Dave did so, and he got an autograph back, and Dave said what really made him happy is he was able to determine that that was actually Walt's signature. It wasn't done by a secretary. It wasn't done by an artist. Walt had uh, uh, several people who were authorized you know, to, to do his signature, Hank Porter, Floyd Godferson, um, Bob Moore, you know, it, it, things like that, because there were so many things for him, you know, to, to sign. But he had sent back uh, to Dave, you know, uh, that personal autograph. Now, here's the twist that listeners can only hear on this podcast. So that's why you should be listening to this podcast. Uh, I talked to, to Dave about that because, again, that was one of the stories that Dave liked to frequently share. And uh, I, I said, well, well, what went through your head? And he says, you know, I still think about it years later, and I thought, you know, if I knew what I was going to be doing 15 years from then, I would have asked him a lot of questions that could have saved me a heck of a lot of time later. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but, you know, uh, again, he, he, he wasn't uh, planning on going in, into a, a, a career at uh, uh, Disney, you know, he he wasn't an artist. He wasn't a, uh, an entertainer. You know, he he was the son of librarians and educators. He earned his uh, B.A. in history and master's degree in library science from the University of California. And uh, he spent some time working in the manuscript department at the Huntington Library in San Marino, which is adjacent to Pasadena. And a beautiful library. I, I, I worked there for a, a, a little while, uh, uh, supporting myself going to college. At, uh, and a beautiful, beautiful place. He worked at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. for a year and a half. And he was on the staff of the research library at UCLA uh, for five years. Um, you know, because he liked working in a big library, you know, that, that had all of these resources, all of these opportunities. And it was working at that research library at UCLA that led to him getting a job at Disney and the creation of the Disney archives. Because he pretty much created his position, didn't he? Oh, gosh, he, he, he did. He had, yeah. Because the Disney company had no idea what an archivist did or and and so uh, he came up with the description, and they said, and, and how much do we pay you? And I always <laughs> used to joke with him, and I said, so you put down a million dollars. 
I, he said, no, no, I, I, I was honest. I, I put down, you know, this is, this is what, in general, you know, an archivist would expect, uh, you know, to make for the, the work that they wanted uh, uh, done there. And, and again, yeah, he, he was the only uh, uh, guy in town there in, in the department. They, they actually lent him a uh, secretary for uh, two to three weeks because his first job was um, documenting Walt's offices. Yeah, I would think that would be daunting. Well, you... it, it, uh, <laughs> Dave said it really felt weird. I was sitting in the chair that Walt Disney sat in, and I was looking through the desk, and I'm I'm counting the number of paper clips that are in there. And 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 he said, uh, you know, and and we took lots of black and white photos, we took lots of color photos, and and the offices had not been touched since uh, Walt's uh, uh, passing. Walt's secretaries worked there for a, a little less than a year, you know, still handling some things before they, they officially moved out. Um, but basically they left Walt's offices as they were, and every couple of weeks, you know, maintenance would come in and, and dust and vacuum, but that was about it. Nothing had been touched. It was all there. And so Dave Smith was the first person to sit down, you know, and start to record all of this. And, and he said he did that, too, uh, because he thought of creating the archives very much like a uh, presidential library. In, in fact, he went out and visited the uh, Truman Library and talked to the director there who, who said that a, a Walt Disney archives would... Uh, uh, you know, ha- have more educational value than any presidential library and would probably be much larger. And every presidential library had a recreation of the Oval Office. And so Dave took all of this information down. And uh, uh, remember, this is uh, June 1970. Uh, all of this information down before anything got moved or, or turned around and whatever. And then, of course, in 1972, what you have at Disneyland is you have the opening of the uh, uh, Walt Disney story. And mm-hmm. in the uh, uh, pre-show, you have Walt's working office and War- Walt's uh, formal office. So, you know, it, it's there. It, 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 it was there. And, that, and so if, if Dave hadn't gone in and done that immediately... You know, who knows what, you know, might have been lost or moved or, or changed around. And, and because they were also thinking of moving um, the Disney offices because they hadn't been used and they really needed the space, you know. And, and uh, Dave's first office was, um, uh, if anybody has been... Um, uh, to the Disney Studios, they've recreated Walt's uh, right. office in there now. Mm-hmm. It, it isn't just the formal office and the working office. There was the uh, secretary area room, mm-hmm. you know, the receptionist area. And th- there was actually f- five rooms total. There, were, there was one room which was uh, where he would get... Um, you know, the traction from, uh, from the, the nurse, you know, at, at night and all that. But there was also an anteroom room that uh, uh, was used a little bit for storage, and that w- room was given to uh, uh, Dave Smith as his first office, his first Disney Archives office, because um, 
they felt he needed to be on property uh, uh, for that uh, to happen. But the funny story that Dave always liked to tell was uh, as they were packing up Walt's office and they were very meticulous. Uh, well, you knew Dave. Dave, Dave was mm-hmm. very meticulous about uh, everything. And, and, you know, they were labeling the boxes and, and, and things like this. And he asked the, the movers if he could keep, you know, the original phones. And they said, no, that's the, uh, uh, that's the property of AT&T and, and all of that. And, and the guy left the room and one of the movers went over and he ripped the phones out of the wall <laughs> and he gave them to Dave and he says, what they don't know won't hurt them. <laughs> <laughs> so in the recreation of the offices, those are the original phones. So, um, you know, oh yeah. my gosh, what what wonderful stories! And you know, we were talking about this before the podcast started. None of these stories are popping up in any of these uh, obituaries about uh, about Dave. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm very disappointed with um, the lack of stories that are being shared out there. You and I talked about it. That's why I invited you on the show. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and. I would say, though, that, you know, you talk about his meticulousness. What well, Really, an archivist had to have that. I mean, that's definitely a quality that they would have to have to be successful. And studios were not preserving their history. Oh, at no, this time. no. In fact, no. They, were, they were purging. Uh, right. Well, well because, because you needed that space. And, in fact, uh, Dave came in just at the time that the Disney studios were going to start doing that same thing. Some of these departments had uh, saved files. Uh, you know, in, in fact, uh, Disney had subscribed to a clipping service since the 1920s. Now, for those who don't know what a clipping service is, that, that's a service that goes through newspapers, and whenever your name or your company's name is mentioned, they will clip out that article and send it to you, you know, and and so they had all of these uh, millions, literally, of clippings since the 1920s. And it's like, well, who will ever need this stuff? You know, you know so Dave was working at uh, UCLA, and uh, one of the things he liked was bibliographies. And he had done a bibliography on the uh, uh, Merrimack and the Monitor, the uh, Civil War warships, because, again, he had a fascination with the Civil War. He had done a bibliography on Jack Benny, because Jack Benny's papers were stored at, at UCLA. And so when Walt died, when Walt passed away in December of 66, uh, Dave thought, you know, there should be a Walt Disney bibliography. And he looked around, and, and, and there was none. And so he contacted the Disney studio, and they were hesitant, but they said that they would help him. And they allowed him to come and look at you know, their collection of Disney publications and all that. But even then, they didn't have a complete collection because if somebody from uh, Denmark had come and said, we want to reprint uh, the third issue of the Mickey Mouse Reader, they would just pack it up and send it to Denmark, and they never followed up as, as to whether it ever got returned to the company or not. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he put, he, it took him about a year and a half, still working at UCLA, and he put together the bibliography, and the studio goes, hey, we're going to buy that from you. <laughs> and, and Dave said, 
my gosh, to make money on a bibliography was not very common at all, you know? And uh, because he worked at UCLA, UCLA then also uh, talked with Disney and said, well, how about having Walt Disney's papers deposited in our special collection? You know, we have Jack Benny's papers, we have all these other things. And so a meeting was set up, and Dave, because of his connection with, with Disney, was asked to, you know, attend the, the, the meeting. And uh, as they were sitting uh, in the meeting, as he was sitting in the meeting, he was hearing this, and it quickly became obvious that UCLA would not be able to house the collection because it was too huge, and the company was still active, so it would need to constantly access that material. And, and again, UCLA would have put most of that stuff, you know, in, into storage before, so they could get around to cataloging it. And also, uh, there was proprietary information. So Disney didn't want somebody coming down to UCLA and looking through the material and then going home and building their own audio-animatronic Abraham Lincoln, you know? So that was not going to, to work out. And, and Dave said he was sitting in the back of the room, and his ears perked up, and uh, he sent a letter to Disney and suggested that they set up their own archives and if uh, uh, they would like, he could take a leave of absence from UCLA and do a survey of uh, what the Disney organization had and what it would take, you know, to get it organized and all this. And he had, you know, my gosh, his resume. He worked for the Library of Congress, for crying out loud. And, and um, at, at UCLA, he was working, you know, in rare books and manuscripts, you know. Uh, and so uh, he took a two-month leave of absence from UCLA, and he went to the studio uh, in the latter part of uh, uh, 1969. And uh, they gave him the Grand Master Key, which opened every lock at the studio. So he was able to go into basements that had, hadn't been in for years. He was able to unlock closets. Uh, he found uh, papers underneath dripping pipes. Uh, he found animation artwork where the termites had gotten in, and they loved the graphite. So they had eaten all the lines of graphite. So it left this sort of etching <laughs> on the paper, uh, you know. And um, and so uh, he, he toured other archives. You know, uh, Disney paid for him to go and visit other archives and see what they were doing and. And as I said, presidential libraries. And so he submitted a proposal in on January first, nineteen seventy, uh, about you know the archive uh, that the Disney Company could set up and and all of this. And Roy O. Disney was very very interested in this um, because uh, basically Roy told uh, Dave, "You have to know where you've been to know where you're going." And uh, but it still took them six months to decide, and again they had no idea what an archivist you know really does or whatever. And so Dave had to write his own job description <laughs> and say this is, is is the salary. And besides being the Disney archivist, Roy Disney had him do a special project just for Roy, and that was. Um, uh, tracking down Disney ancestry. And so uh, uh, in the early uh, uh, year there, he, he flew around uh, uh, the country, 
you know, it, it went up to the the family farm in in Canada and all, and all of that. You know, trying to track uh, all of this uh, uh, stuff done. And and again, uh, people don't realize this, but uh, uh, yeah, for four decades. <laughs> That was his job, you know. He, he authored several books and magazine articles. He assisted on others. Uh, uh, the Ask Dave column that we're all familiar with started in July 1983 for the Disney Channel magazine, you know, and then it appeared in other things like the Disney magazine. That boy, I really miss the Disney magazine. I do know? too. Yeah. You know, the D23 magazine does not even come close, as far as I'm concerned. But the Ask Dave column appears on, on the D23 website. It appears in, 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 the, in the magazine. You know, and, and something that Dave really never gets full credit for is he established Mickey Mouse's birthday. Again, that was one of the first mm-hmm. things he did, because um, Mickey Mouse's birthday was celebrated any time between, you know, uh, September to... Uh, mid-November, you know, uh, just to drive kids into movie theaters for a Mickey Mouse birthday party. But what would happen is newspapers and magazines would pick up on this, and so you have these articles that, yes, Mickey's birthday is October 1st, 1928. Mickey's birthday is uh, September 30th, 1920. I I have copies of those articles, you know. Because that's when the birthday was celebrated that that particular year, and so it was up to Dave. Because in 1973, you're coming up to the 50th anniversary of the Disney Company. You know, started uh, 1923 there, and uh, in 1978, you're coming up to the 50th anniversary of Mickey Mouse. So, from just from a marketing standpoint, just from a publicity standpoint, it's important to have a definite date for Mickey Mouse's birthday. And so he determined that Mickey Mouse's birthday should be tied um, to the uh, premiere of Steamboat Willie at the Colony Theater in in New York on November 18, 1928. And even though people at the studio had said, oh, yeah, Steamboat Willie, that's really when Mickey was, was born, nobody had ever bothered to go and find out what the actual date was. (laughs) <laughs> so so Dave had to dig up uh, uh, trade papers and uh, newspapers from the time period. He, he, he was able to find a program uh, for the showing, you know, so that he could confirm that, yes, November 18th, 1928. And, and again, that's another Dave thing, is you have to find multiple sources. You can't depend on just one source uh, for that. And so in 1973, uh, an official press release went out that Mickey Mouse's birthday was November 18th, 1928. And today that's what we say. That's the day. And, 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 yeah. and, 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 and we've been, we've been saying it since 1973 and it's all because of, uh, Dave Smith. And I said, well, what about the other birthdays? He said, well, Minnie's birthday is the same because, you know, she was in Steamboat Willie and Donald Duck You know, it was 1934 because of Wise Little Hen. But Pluto and Goofy developed over several cartoons, so there's not one cartoon where you can say, that's Pluto, you know, whatever. So they don't have an official birthday. And I said, so Snow White's birthday must be December 1937. He said, no. He said Snow White existed as a character before the Disney film. And in the Disney film, she's already a teenager. 
So it makes no sense that December 1937... All right, okay, thank you, Dave. <laughs> I, 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 I remember one time when I was, uh, I was taken to task, and, and I always loved when he did that because it always just made me smarter. And, and it is, is Tinkerbell one word or two words? Because it was used both by, by the Disney company. It was, yeah. And, and Dave says, it's two words. And I said, well, how do you determine that? He said, when you watch the uh, movie, Captain Hook refers to her as Miss Bell. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously two words. Very good. He was like a little Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> he, he, he was a, 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 a detective. Well, you know, one of his hobbies was he collected material on S.S. Van Dyne, who was a, a mystery novelist who wrote a character called Philo Vance, which uh, later inspired characters like uh, Nick Charles, the Thin Man, things like that. But uh, Smith collected material on, on S.S. Van Dyne, which, by the way, is a pseudonym, because uh, the guy was an art critic, and he didn't want to write these mystery novels under his own name because he felt that would you know, undercut his, his validity there. And, and I've mentioned that, that Dave would collect Civil War autographs. He collected stamps. You know, and, and I think that's a nice reminder to all of us that even Disney experts, should have outside interests. Yes. You know, you, 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 I, I have many friends, and they are just so consumed by Disney that there's no room for anything else. And I, and I, and I say, look, there's a wonderful world out there. You know, I, 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 I'm, as I said, I, I'm a comic book collector. I, I'm a huge fan of King Kong. I've got a King Kong collection. I'm a huge fan of Flash Gordon. I've got a Flash Gordon collection. Uh, vaudeville. I've got a huge collection of of, of books and and uh, stuff on, on on vaudeville, and and that gives you a nice healthy uh, uh, perspective because you know you can you can overdose on pixie dust. <laughs> oh, really absolutely! <laughs> and and Dave Smith's legacy isn't just limited to the Walt Disney Company. I mean, he really had an impact on the greater film industry, didn't he? Oh, oh uh, yes. In, in, in fact, uh, he was a member of the Society of uh, California Archivists because um, the Disney archives that he developed was considered the gold standard of how do you handle, you know, an archives. And uh, he served as, um, uh, from 1980 to, gosh, uh, uh, 2000, maybe 2001, as executive director of the Manuscript Society which is an international association of collectors and dealers and librarians and archivists and who, who are interested in manuscript material and how do you locate that and how do you preserve that and how do you catalog that. And, um, uh, and, and of course, he, w- he was the first person that people went to. So when, when Disney was releasing um, uh, 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 the Disney you know, uh, uh, films, uh, uh, whether it was on uh, DVD or Laserdisc or uh, uh, Blu-ray or whatever, they'd all go to, you know, the Disney archives. You know, what do you have that hasn't been seen before? Those bonus features, yeah. (laughs) You know, and let's use that. And and, and again, I I think what 
uh, Dave established is that it was, you know, it was necessary to have an, uh, you know, an archives, you know, and so uh, other companies started to develop that. You know, Coca-Cola now has has a small one in um, uh, uh, Atlanta and uh, all, all of that because uh, people have found that this gives a sense of investment to people who work in the company, but also it's, it's gr- a great marketing tool, you know, uh, out there, especially with all the anniversaries and, and things that are out there. But, but one of the standards that they've set, of course, was it's got to be accurate. You know, he would not make a guess, you know, the, the closest he would come is, well, that seems to make sense, but we have no documentation on that. And so he would not give his seal of approval, he, you know, uh, until he was sure that all the I's were dotted, all the T's were, were crossed. And one of the things that people don't realize is um, uh, later in his career is uh, Bob Iger was sending him out on uh, film sets and to the theme parks uh, to pick up items that could be used to create a Disney museum. This is probably a secret people don't know. Uh, The the Disney company was uh, upset about the Walt Disney Family Museum and thought that that was going to be a huge success up in San Francisco. It wasn't. Uh, I, I, I think some of that is because of the location, you know, Diane put it there because she wanted it removed from, you know, the Disney company and, and Southern California because she didn't want her, her father seen as a thing. She wanted it as a, uh, seen as a, a, a son and a brother and a father and a grandfather and, and, and whatever. And, and also she wanted it close to where she lived, which is up in the Napa Valley with the Silverado uh, uh, winery, but if you've ever been to the Walt Disney Family oh, Museum, yes, many times. It, 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 it's a pain and a half trying to get there. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I usually will take a taxi there and just have the taxi drop me off. But then it's a pain sometimes to get a taxi out of there. You know, there there really is no parking and 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 things like that, and uh, so it's a little remote. But boy, is it a magnificent museum! So anyway, the Disney company was thinking of creating a museum. And Dave had learned early on, because in the beginning, you know, he he collected everything, you know. Uh, But he found that people were coming, and they didn't want to, you know, they wanted to see a toy or two, but they didn't really want to see a lot of the merchandise and all of that. Uh, But they were interested in the contract with the company for that piece of merchandise, or the diagram, you know, for that piece of merchandise. And again, uh, the archives had limited space. And so they had to winnow out, you know, a, a, a lot of that. They, they kept uh, 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 some things. But w- when Bob Iger came on board, he, he literally sent uh, Dave Smith out onto the, the set of Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, whatever, to see if there was anything that should be saved. When uh, the Mr. Toad ride um, uh, closed here in uh, in Florida, uh, Dave picked up uh, one of the little devils at, mm-hmm. at at the end, you know, for the collection. And and again, they do have items that they put out on display. They have the 
the bed knob from bed knobs and broomsticks. They have the uh, uh, snow globe from uh, the original uh, uh, Mary Poppins. They have the ring that the kid wore in uh, uh, the Shaggy Dog. You know that uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know would trans- transform him. Um, they have a wristwatch from two-way radio wristwatch from the Dick Tracy movie. And, and Dave said, so we tried to pick things that people would immediately, you know, recognize. So when we put that out on display, but we don't have a lot of space, so we have to be very careful. But Bob Iger was having Dave go out and pick out items that could be put, and Disney has warehouses all over the place. You know, out, out here in Florida, in, in Kissimmee, there's like two huge warehouses, you know, packed to the brim with uh, I, I've been in them, you know, with, with with items from Walt Disney World, you know, from extinct things and all that. But um, so one of the things was they were thinking of uh, creating a, a Disney museum, and uh, Dave was uh, uh, going to be involved in uh, uh, creating that. But uh, but again, as I said, the Walt Disney Family Museum, as wonderful as it is, and I would recommend every single person listening to this podcast go there at least once, and it's going to take you more than a day to go through there. So prepare yourself, you know. Um, it wasn't the, the, you know, blockbuster well, it success. Yeah, and it's not a company museum. Like you said, it tells the life of Walt Disney so, mm-hmm. um, but and 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 it's beautifully done. It, it's mm-hmm. beautifully done. I, I I wish I lived, you know, closer so I could go there, uh, you know, uh, more often. And uh, you know, we we also talked about you know Ron Miller passing away. You know, the it, the museum was really Diane's baby. Ron was supportive of it, but once Diane, you know, passed away, I think a lot of the zest went out of. Uh, uh, Ron's life, and he had to step up and do, you know, some of the um, uh, Diane things, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I, I don't know whether he was really comfortable in doing that. For instance, he came down to Disneyland for its 60th. Right, yeah, you know? we saw him there. And, and, yeah. and again, you know, he had sworn that he would never set foot on Disney property ever again. But but he did that for Diane, you know. He did that to 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 support Diane, and and nobody seemed to notice. I I didn't see that in any you know the Disney uh, uh, blog reports and and things like this. How amazing this is that you know you've got Ron Miller there, you know, who had mm-hmm. who had basically you know uh, said completely goodbye to the Disney company when he was. Uh, uh, pushed out in, in, in 84, you know, and then moved up uh, uh, to just uh, live and operate the uh, winery up there in Northern California. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jim, we're so delighted that you could take some time out to share some stories about Dave Smith and to talk about his legacy with us mm-hmm. and his importance to all well, of us. Well, you know, what he uh, felt his legacy was, I asked him this on, on stage. I interviewed him several times at Walt Disney World, and once on stage, this was in uh, uh, 2006, uh, at the end of, you know, interviewing him and, and going through and uh, all of this, I said, well, Dave, what what do you want your legacy to do? Well, he says, you know, I've mentored you know, a lot of, uh, 
young people, and I said, yep, you mentored me. My gosh, you, you made me a better writer and a better Disney historian, <laughs> and, and you held my feet to the fire many times so that, so that I could do that. He said, I think my legacy is that I've mentored th- these uh, people who later went on to become writers or they became members of the, the Disney company, and uh, in fact, I can give you an example of one right off the top of my head, Steve Vagini, who I think is uh, absolutely outstanding at the Disney archives today. I was working at Epcot in the Disney Learning Center, and Dave dropped in with this kid, and he says, I'd like you to meet Stephen. He's interested in Disney history. And I said, well, okay, Stephen, drop by any time. We'll, we'll talk. And uh, uh, Dave took him under his wing and mentored him, and by Golly, he's an outstanding archivist today. So uh, he said that, and he said he also hoped that his uh, legacy would be um, the truthfulness about Disney, about being accurate about the information, about, you know, and not being sloppy, you know, not being sloppy, but to go back and and double check before you go out and, and do that. And and he said, you know, that, that's what I consider my legacy is that I, I've helped young people, you know, uh, in this and that I've also tried to establish uh, a set of standards that I hope other people will um, try to do. And, and what a great legacy that is. It is. And he, he has achieved that. So speaking of legacies, Jim, what are you working on these days? Is there anything you can share <laughs> I, I'm uh, working on trying to pay my bills, but uh, <laughs> aren't we all? <laughs> but but the way of doing that, of course, is is writing books. And uh, the end of last year, I came out with um, uh, secret stories of Mickey Mouse, which are over a hundred stories about uh, Mickey Mouse, and not the standard stories. For instance, one of the stories is about how, in the 1933 King Kong movie, King Kong was killed by Mickey Mouse, and you can see it in the film. And so, you know, those are the types of stories that are in that book. And I also came out with Vault of Walt, Volume 7, Christmas Edition, Mm -hmm. which was a book filled with nothing but Christmas stories about Walt Disney, uh, about the parks, about films, you know, like Nightmare Before Christmas and Mickey's Christmas Carol and Prep and Landing and, and all of that. And uh, a bunch of miscellaneous Christmas stories, like Disney's participation in the Macy's Day Parade and the Toys uh, uh, for Tots program and, and all of that. And in March, a brand new Corcus book is coming out. It is the unofficial Walt Disney World 1971 Companion. Ah, so and it it's covers ready. the okay. entire creation of Walt Disney World from 1958, when Walt first had Buzz Price go out and do a survey of the East Coast, in particular Florida, all the way through the end of 1972. And so each of the lands have have their own chapter. Each of the resorts have their own chapter. There's a chapter on things that were um, uh, proposed but never built. Uh, 
you know, there were several resorts. There was uh, Thunder Mesa. There is something that a lot of people don't realize is that Claude Coates came up with a design for an attraction that was going to be between the contemporary and um, Tomorrowland, which would have been a boat ride, which would have taken you back into the past of the time of dinosaurs with audio animatronic dinosaurs. And so that would have been the tri- uh, transition into Tomorrowland. So uh, again, talked with a lot of people who worked at, at uh, uh, Disney World in '71 and '72, and those who went there. I, I interviewed Imagineer uh, Tom Morris, mm-hmm. um, who, who is a, a, a big second, third generation Imagineer. And as a kid, he was there, uh, you know, at the opening in 1971, and so he shared, you know the experiences of, of, of what a teenager would feel going into Walt Disney World in 1971. And uh, uh, the uh, introduction is by Tom Nabby, who used to be Tom Sawyer out at, uh, mm-hmm. uh, at Disneyland, but when he came out to Walt Disney World, you know, uh, he was in charge of the monorails first, you know, and uh, then got in charge of uh, Tomorrowland when uh, they were building uh, uh, Space Mountain and all that. And the afterward is by um, uh, Bill Sully Sullivan, who eventually became uh, president of Magic Kingdom. But at the time, uh, he was training people for the uh, uh, Polynesian and um, uh, contemporary, training them in terms of, you know, Disney attitude, Disney service. And then he went over and he worked security in, in uh, Frontierland and Tomorrowland and and all of this. So so again, it's important to get you know the first hand impressions from the people who are actually there, even though you know sometimes the memories may not be you know as. Here's a Dave Smith story for you. I I, I was asking you about Lillian Disney because Lillian always just seemed a little standoffish to me, and he, he said. Yes, he said he felt it was because it, it was uh, shy, and he said he wanted to be very careful around her. But um, uh, uh, Wally Bogue was retiring, and there was a big retirement party at, uh, at uh, Frontierland at the Golden Horseshoe Review, and Lillian showed up. And Dave said, I finally built up courage because there was a question I wanted to ask, and I, I said, how tall was Walt? And he said, she didn't have any clue. At all, <laughs> and I asked her a couple of other questions, and it was like she had just pushed all of those memories away. And he said it was just so frustrating. He he later tracked down that Walt was about five ten. He he might have been as short as five nine, but but officially he he was considered five ten. But but he says, what kind of wife doesn't know how tall her husband? Is? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and so. Uh, I like the fact that he could get, even though he had access to all of these things, that, that he could still get frustrated and that he was still curious. There were still things he wanted to know, you know. And so I hope uh, up in uh, up in heaven right now he's getting uh, all of those questions answered. And, uh, and from Walt and, himself. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and slapping his head and going, well, of course, I should have known I should have figured it out. Well, Jim, thank you. And I know we can get your books at themeparkpress.com and, and also Amazon.com. Amazon. And, and, and remember that I'm an orphan 
and remember that it's tax time and I need to pay my bills. So, you know, <laughs> and, and, and as a freelance writer, they don't take uh, withholding out of your checks. So this is always a, oh dear. this is always yeah. a horrendous time of year, but I always enjoy being on, on the podcast. Please don't hesitate to, uh, uh, to ask me to uh, uh, come back, and and I I know you can tell I enjoy really enjoy talking about Walt, talking about Disney history, and I hope your listeners have learned something and go out and share that information. And for all of you who are listening, may all your Disney dreams come true. Oh, thank you, Jim, and I hope yours do too. We'll look forward to having you back soon. Okay, Craig. Well, it seems like after talking about Dave Smith and the archives, this is an appropriate time to take a look at this week in Disney history. Hopefully I can uh, do him proud. Yeah, and this, of course, is for the week of February 24th. So this is our alternate um, version. So... Walt Disney's second live-action film based on the Robert Louis Stevenson novel is released on February 24th, 1960. What is the name of this film? The second one... Um, well, I believe the first one was Treasure Island. Mm-hmm. And the second was at the tip of my tongue. I think this was on a Turner Classic Movie Um, episode we talked about. uh, Kidnapped. Yes, you're right. Yep, starring Peter Finch, Peter O'Toole, and James MacArthur. Kidnapped and cheated out of his inheritance, young David Balfour, who's MacArthur, falls in with a Jacobite adventurer. So who's Alan Breck Stewart, Peter Finch. Yeah, that was a so, long time it, ago we talked about that. That was. It was quite a while ago. And this is based, of course, on the novel Kidnap, first published in 1886. So, is, And I think this was painstakingly done in detail to the <laughs> novel, which probably was its downfall. Although I think it was popular in the United Kingdom. Good for so, Okay, February 25th. The NBC Television Network airs a Disney musical special hosted by Suzanne Summers on February 25th, 1988. Destined to become a favorite someday of a young Craig Williams, what is the name of this special and why was it noteworthy? Um, I. Okay. I don't remember. I'm only putting bits and pieces of this together. Is this a special where it had the Elton John and Minnie Mouse? Don't go breaking my heart. I believe it did. Yeah, I don't remember the name of the special, which I feel terrible for. I probably because I'm trying to put that entire panel behind me still, but I I know that. That this was that countdown, remember, that we enjoyed so much. Yeah, I just don't remember. And wasn't the name of the countdown the same name or close to it? It was, yeah, Totally Mini. That's right. Remember? Yeah. And we said that is why they came up with that, just so yeah. they could 
come up. Yeah, it's and it, it was noteworthy because it was the first. Um, it was the first television special to feature Minnie Mouse in in a lead role. So I love Suzanne voiced by Lucy Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so did you own a Thighmaster? I didn't own that, but uh, I mean, of course, <laughs> I grew up with her on Step by Step, and then once reruns of Three's Company came on, it's like, what? She worked before Step by Step. It was yeah, just it blew my did. mind. Yeah, she left that show. I I, I didn't watch it, but. I think she left in a cloud of controversy. I mean, it was entertaining enough. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, February 26th. On February 26th, 2002, Terminal B of the Sacramento International Airport is evacuated as a result of this Disney item. When I saw this was happening in, you know, near the um, Dis Unplugged Northern California studios, I had to... uh, Hmm add this in i do not know this at all so well an unclaimed mickey mouse snow globe in an unlabeled cardboard box causes 150 people to be evacuated from the b1 terminal and five outbound flights to be delayed Mm, think of the date think of the date february 26 2002 this is right after 9 11 yeah no i mean that makes sense yeah. yeah I, I never had heard that before, though. So that's a new yeah, one for and, me. Yeah, and snow globes got banned. Exactly, yeah. And all that. So anyway, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, that was it. So, Gosh. Okay. Um, all right, February 27th. The, the publication, The Daily Variety, runs the story, Walt Disney Weeps as He Gets Oscar, on February 27th, 1942. Which award did Walt receive? Um, I, it's another one. I don't think I can answer because this would have, I mean, we all know Walt's famous Oscar with the seven doors. That would have been way earlier. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not quite, it could have been for a short. It could have been for something else. I'm not, I'm not positive. Well, at the previous night's Academy Awards ceremony, Walt was given the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. And he found it difficult to speak and was only able to say with great emotion, I want to thank everybody here. This is a vote of confidence from the whole industry. So so this predates Sally Field's speech. Uh, you know, you, you like me, you really like yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, Another new one for me. Yeah, there you go. I'm just full of them today. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, February 28th. One of Walt's nine old men retired on February um, 28th, 1986. He may be best known for creating the kitten Figaro, Thumper, the Caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland, and Mr. Toad in Wind in the Willows. He has been called the animator's animator. What is the name of this future Disney legend? I believe this would be Eric Larson. You're right. And he retired at the age of 81. Thanks for including the characters. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you would have just said who retired in 1986, that would have really been leaving me that out to dry. Been, yeah, that would have been really <laughs> tough. But, but he's so well associated with these characters. Yeah. and um, yeah. 
Anyway, okay, on March 1st, Walt Disney's first Alice comedy debuts on March 1st, 1924, in several East Coast theaters. What is the name of this film? Oh, my gosh. I should know this one, but... Hmm. I'm thinking. Just got to think back to our episode... Was it Day at Sea? It was. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's a combination live action and animated film featuring young Virginia Davis as Alice. And this was created almost entirely by Walt himself and his brother Roy. That one really took some thinking back. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> okay, and finally, March 2nd. Actor Eric Bloor passes away on March 2nd, 1959. What is his Disney connection? I've, I've never heard that name before. Oh, okay. He was a voice. He's the voice of Mr. Toad in Walt Disney's 1949 The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Uh, there you go. He, he, was, he was a really well known character actor. And I was surprised he passed away this early, but I think I saw his films on TV when I was a boy when, you know, when, when channels filled prime time and all that when I was young and weekends with, you know, classic films. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was in so many of them. So um, he was a butler or a detective or, or of course, something. yeah. So, well, you didn't do too badly. Uh, no, and we're we're stopping one short of the most important day in Disney history. Oh, is that your birthday or something? It is. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, see, that was going to be next week. Yeah, so uh, that can be the first question next week. I think. Who was born on this day in 1980? Blank. <laughs> yes, and happy birthday. Yeah, it, a little in advance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get we'll get there with that question though. It'll be fine. Or it'll be about something else. Who knows? <laughs> well, Craig, I it was great hearing Jim Corcus talk about Dave Smith. And you and I, of course, when we went on the first um tour of Walt Disney's office, we of course got to meet Dave Smith in the archives. Yeah, and yeah. I sent you a photo of that. Maybe we can post that um, when the show goes up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's actually that was the first thing I I thought of when when I saw the news that he passed. I couldn't remember if I had the copy of it, if you had the copy of it, but I I can remember standing there with him right in the the archives room, and we had. Uh, like the the one Mary Blair artwork from yes, so I think it was Saludos Amigos uh, out on it. Well, I mean, generally just from their their South America trip, but was used to inspired with that and and just standing there and chatting with him real quick and taking that photo. It's one of those things that it it was a very small moment, uh, but. It's now one that I can look back and cherish, uh, like some of the other times I've I've been able to meet Disney legends. I know you've met so many more than me, but uh, it's when I do get to meet them, it's it, it it makes me incredibly happy, and I'm glad that I get to say that I I, I met Dave Smith. So mm-hmm. 
Yeah, he's a bot. I, yeah, I got to meet him several times. I remember once, I think it was at the D23 Expo and the Archives exhibit. It was near the... Remember when they had the book from the film Sleeping Beauty on display? And he was just sitting there on a stool, and nobody was talking to him. <laughs> and so I walked up to him, and so did Carol. And we were chatting, and then Carol quizzed him about you know my my Mickey Mouse Club and were there any photos and he was chatting he said oh yeah they're in a box somewhere <laughs> and so it sort of fit in with what jim gorkas was saying so well, uh, i thought that that was cute and we know there's still a box somewhere out there somewhere it's and it's it's probably labeled you know who knows what jungle book i mean i don't know <laughs> we someone will will pick will get to it one day and <laughs> It's it will be found. Yes, I know that somebody once told me at the, at the Walt Disney Family Museum they came across it and they were researching. They were doing research for a book and they came across the photos. But he said he couldn't for the life of him remember where he came across them. But he was surprised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but, well, Craig. Until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Well, as always, you can find me Tuesdays on the Walt Disney World Edition podcast. Wednesdays on the Best and Worst of Walt Disney World. Thursdays on the Universal Edition, and then always on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Teleclaster. And why the heck not? I'm feeling feeling fun tonight. If you want to email me, Craig at wdwinfo.com. Oh wow, that's a first. It's, I know it's it's hard to figure out my email address considering everyone's email is basically their first name at wdwinfo. But I'll, I'll offer it up. I'm I'm feeling okay. nice. There you go. Well, take advantage of it, gang, before he closes the <laughs> yeah. um, Okay. You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at our official Connecting with Walt account at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.